Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We've got a great lighthearted show for you today, talking about wormholes and exoplanets and all sorts of fun scientific stuff. But I should, of course, mention that despite the fact that this is a lighthearted show, these are not lighthearted times. My heart goes out to the people of Ukraine. I hope that Russian leaders will change course immediately and end their aggression against Ukraine before any lives are lost. I would encourage all of us to keep up pressure on world leaders to bring this to a close as peacefully and as quickly as possible. There's not a great way to move on with the show after talking about war. Um, And so despite the fact that today's show is about a lighthearted topic, um, the people of Ukraine are the first thing and the last thing that I'm thinking about today. And um, I encourage all of you to, to keep them in your thoughts as well. So before we bring on our guest today, I want to remind you that we have a new newsletter that deals with topics related to big societal issues and the health of our democracy. So if you hit pause on this episode real quick, just for a few seconds and click on the newsletter link in the show description, you can subscribe in one easy click, or you can go to connorsforum.org and subscribe there. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. All podcast episodes and newsletter articles will be sent to your email inbox immediately upon release. Pretty cool. All right, so returning to the show today is NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory astronomer Varajan Gorgian, and he's here to talk about wormholes and exoplanets and aliens and the James Webb Telescope. It's going to be a great conversation. We've had him on before. He was such a great guest that we had to have him back. So Varajan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you back. Uh, we'll we'll do less Star Wars talk this time and more uh, about what we brought you on this time. Uh, <laughs> although I know you could do a whole episode on Star Wars. Oh, I could very very much do that. But either way, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll uh, we'll reserve one for uh, you. Have such valuable time. I can't even imagine emailing you and saying let's do a Star Wars episode. <laughs> but uh, you don't anyway. know how much I love Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember hearing about your uh, lightsaber salute at your wedding and and all that good stuff last time. That was awesome. Yep. All right. So today, so last time we talked about black holes. Today, uh, we're going to talk about wormholes. So uh, I always find the idea of a wormhole fascinating. One of my favorite movies of the last decade was Interstellar. And that played a prominent role in that movie. So we'll we'll get to that movie in a minute. But let's, let's talk science first, the science of it first. Um, very basically, what is a wormhole? So, wormholes actually grew out of Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is a way of describing how gravity works. And in this case, gravity works is not a force like electromagnetism, that it's just this force that travels through space, um, but that gravity is really the consequence of mass bending the fabric of space-time, that space-time is this combined thing. If you have mass, you bend it, you change its shape. And so that's the curve that you see when you throw a baseball. The baseball isn't falling. The baseball is f- traveling in a tilted 
plane, basically. So that's why it's changing its direction. That is, it's not, the straight path has been shifted by the mass of the Earth. Now, to sort of take that to an extreme case is that if it's a fabric, then thinking about it maybe just as a sheet of paper, if you want to connect like the top left corner to the bottom left corner of a sheet of paper, um, you let's say if you want to travel from one to that, those two corners, you travel along the edge of the paper. The idea is of a wormhole is that you fold the paper and now you have, you can punch a hole through one corner and you hit the other corner. And so now you haven't traveled along the entire edge of the paper. You have now instantaneously nearly or nearly instantaneously gone from one location to the next. So if space time is this fabric and it can be bent, then can you bend it enough so that one position in space-time is connected to another position in space-time so that you don't have to travel the long way you travel, you know, near, instantaneously, effectively? And the reason it's called a wormhole is sort of this is the idea of an, if you have an apple, you can travel on the surface of the apple, but the worm can make a hole from one side of the apple, go through the apple to the other side which you know, to make a shorter path and connect those two points. So that's the general idea of what a wormhole is, to be able to connect one point in space, space-time, but to another. Yeah, that, uh, that idea of folding paper, I think, is the, the classic example of how a very smart person like Varjan <laughs> explains this to a very dumb person like me. Um, and there's a, a memorable scene in um, the movie Interstellar where, you know, like, you know, a movie's trying to do a whole bunch of exposition in a very short period of time. And so they have one of the astronauts fold a piece of paper, push a pencil through it. And that demonstrates the wormhole, right? And it's, it really is, I think one of the better, uh, not just demonstrations, but sort of communications in in the shortest amount of time that you can do of this concept. Most concepts don't lend this themselves to this kind of a brief thing, but it's not that far off of the reality of it. Very often, you have to sort of move off and do a lot more analogies, which are sort of kind of, this is not exactly correct, but it's a lot closer to it. So, that's why it gets used so often because it actually, that's what we're talking about. It's connecting two points, which you would have to travel in a much longer direction, but by bending those two points and having them touch together, now your your travel time is basically nothing. Anytime you say uh, space time, um, when, when you say it, you probably, it probably like, uh, conjures formulas and, and very complex things in your mind. When I hear it, I think of Christopher Lloyd and, and Doc Brown, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> Which, no, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. His time machine wasn't really bending space time, so then, but still it was. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> There were many gigawatts of power in there, so I have there's no nobody's idea only going 88 miles per hour. <laughs> so into, and there's no mass accumulation and everything. Yeah, but no, it's it's uh, well. This interview is over, folks. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, before we move on, um, so when does this idea arise? Um, who comes up with it? Um, what's sort of the intellectual journey of this idea? So uh, in uh, the earlier versions of um, Einstein's working on general relativity, he puts it out there. And then as people and himself included, start working about the consequences of of what the theory is and the formulas, 
he, in fact, is the one who comes up with it in collaboration with um, another physicist named Rosen. And so they publish a paper about this. And the technical term of this, in fact, become, is an Einstein-Rosen bridge. So the, the colloquial term, of course, has become a wormhole, but really uh, the technical term is an Einstein-Rosen bridge because it's this bridge between two points in space-time. But yeah, so he, that was a critical thing that he himself, again, this really speaks to how incredible Einstein was because as much as there's been different aspects of physics that have, um, you know, have had multiple, multiple contributors to bring that together, a significant portion of general rel relativity really was Einstein's independent individual idea. Not that he didn't use some other ideas, not that there weren't other things, but really a large portion of it, he came up with it himself, and then he developed aspects of it. Now, there's other aspects which others developed and continued and built upon, and the, you know, incredible work was done from Chandrasekhar about, you know, uh, talking about black holes. And Einstein was not a fan of black holes initially, but then, uh, and then you had Stephen Hawking and so on. So there's been a lot of work that's built up on the um, ideas that he came up with. But unlike, for example, quantum mechanics, which even Einstein contributed to that you know, at the beginning as well, a good deal of general relativity was his idea or his idea in collaboration with others. And, you know, that, wormholes were a part of that now unfortunately of course we should say that we've never actually observed a wormhole correct oh correct yeah i mean at this point there is um uh, how you can get a wormhole to exist is very difficult <laughs> in fact in terms of the physics of it and uh kip thorne who was who's an expert in general relativity was the science advisor for the movie interstellar he actually collaborated to come up with a way of having this work and within the physics of it you can actually make it work but there's a lot of stuff that really just are things that don't exist or certainly we don't see them existing in our universe sort of negative energy kind of things which is like what <laughs> um but um so yeah it's it's you know and there's nothing that we've seen that leads us to believe at this point how that that this wormholes exist in the universe where, you know, something goes in one end and comes out the other, uh, you know, instantaneously. Now, I thought I read an article a few months ago or maybe even last year um, that some scientists had proposed maybe on a very micro level that naturally occurring wormholes uh, pop into existence for a very short period of time, something about foam or something like that. Am I misremembering? No, no, it's, that's actually uh, right. It's, it's uh, that, is probably the biggest development in wormholes in recent times. And this, and, and I'll beg you to hang with me here for a little bit because this, there's a little bit of an explanation, but I think there's a good payoff to this. Um, so um, this takes us into the realm of quantum mechanics. So general relativity deals with you know, large scale things because gravity is working on larger scales. So quantum mechanics is the physics that deals with the smallest things or so much, you know, and, you know, atoms and electrons and protons and you know, subatomic particles, you know, smaller than those. So, one of the key tenets of quantum mechanics is that it's a probabilistic solution to the science, to whatever you're observing. Now, it's not probabilistic in the sense that sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that, although that's the consequence of it. 
But what you have is, for example, let's say a particle splits somehow. And usually when it splits, it has to have a certain conservation of various properties. And one of them is a particular spin. So if a particle starts out with no spin and splits into two particles with spin, now spin isn't actually things spinning, but you can even think of it like that for the purposes of this description. So what you have is what's called a spin up and a spin down. Now, statistically, whether the right one is spin up and the left one is spin down or versus the right one is spin down and the left one is spin up is 50-50. But what in quantum mechanics, what that means isn't that half the time it's going to be up and half the time it's going to be down as a simple statement, is that once the particles split, both are both spin up and down from the beginning. And this is where observation comes in. That is, it has to be up or down, but it will be both until you observe it. As a, This is part of the current interpretation of how we deal with quantum mechanics. And so, once you observe one, let's say the right one is spin up, then the other one has to be spin down. You, that both of them can't be spin up. But the point is, before you observed it, statistically, they were both. They, they were what's called a superposition of states. Einstein hated this idea. He hated, hated, hated this. And he even went out so far famously to say, you know, God doesn't play dice with the universe. So he proposed an experiment to show that quantum mechanics, this interpretation of quantum mechanics, or at least this way of understanding quantum mechanics was wrong. So he said, okay, let's say these two particles are traveling. You, know, you create these two particles and they're both up and down. And you let them drift apart from each other so far, so far from each other that when you make the observation on one, let's say the right one, and it collapses into either up or down, it's too, too far away for light. Well, the light is the fastest way that they can communicate with each other. So it will send some form of a communication at the speed of light to the other one. He's like saying, I'm up. You better be down. Except let's say you've let them drift apart so far that you look at the other particle before light has had time to reach any, any information, not light specifically, but any information has had time to reach from the right side particle to the left side particle. So how's the other particle going to know? How's the other particle always going to be the opposite of that one when it has zero communication with chance of communicating with the other one? So this one was called the Einstein-Podelsky-Rosen experiment, and it's known as EPR. So, EPR, the EPR experiment was very difficult to do, but in the past, I think, probably 20 years now, but certainly in the past 10 years, they've done it multiple times. And that's exactly what happens. The particle, there's no, no matter how far they are, one will be up, the other one, they will always keep their opposite positions. It's like, so there's faster than light communication, what's going on here? So a physicist, physicist named Susskind uh, came up with this idea that you can. People were already thinking about the wormholes could statistically, you know, in this sort of quantum foam level, exist on the very, very small scale. But he said, you know what, Einstein-Rosen bridges and the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment e, uh, (ER) is equal to EPR. It's the same thing that there is a wormhole connecting these two particles so that they can instantaneously communicate with each other. 
And so this may in fact, you know, you're asking whether we've observed or not. Now we have nobody has sort of settled on this. We have in fact demonstrated this, but could be demonstrating it on a daily basis every time we're doing the EPR experiment. And in fact, the reason that they can communicate faster than the speed of light is that they're not really communicating faster than the speed of light. They're not traveling over space-time the same way. They're connected directly. And so, when one changes, that, that change is instantaneously communicated to the other one. So, you're never going to have the particles drift so far apart where they cannot know, communicate, you know, whether I'm up, therefore you should be down or I'm down, you should be up. In fact, they're always instantaneously right next to each other, thanks to uh, a very sort of subatomic or level wormhole connecting the two. All right. So, on a scale of one to 10, if if Varajan was told, you know what, we just found a a wormhole, we don't know if it's it's naturally existing or it's been created, scale of one to 10, how much does Varajan want to travel through it? Oh, uh, that, that's, that's a 10. My <laughs> wife would be very much not, it would be a negative 10 on that one. <laughs> Even without knowing what's on the other side, you, you would be at a 10. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was, that's one of those things where that's truly one of those. Well, obviously, you want to send robots first, okay? <laughs> so, we, why, I mean, we are too fragile. Send your robots first, figure what is there, but you do want to eventually go there yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Time travel paradoxes. So, which one interests interests you the most, and why? Hmm. You mentioned the grandfather paradox, but yeah. So the the idea of you know what happens if you go back in time and kill your grandfather. Uh, I think um, it's this is something else that I saw. It was in a meme, and I and and the paradox is actually not so much about the past. I mean, there's it's this has been already sort of examined on so many levels on on, on TVs and movies. Uh, but in general, one of the things that we constantly concentrate on is if you travel back in time, small actions that you take can have huge consequences for the future. In the movie Back to the Future, he just accidentally interferes with one meeting between the person that would become his father and his mother. Therefore, you know, what happens to his existence in the later? He doesn't even kill his father. He just prevents them from meeting. That's it. Or meeting on that one day, you know, it's not even all days, just on that one moment. But and 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 I, I'm not so much for motivational posters and so on. But I will say that one of them that came that I saw is like, why is it that we're so fascinated by going back in time and doing something small and then thinking that oh my god, that's going to have such a huge effect? But in our daily lives, we don't think that our small actions are going to have huge consequences for the future. Wow. So, treat your life as you are the time traveler from the future and you've come back to the past and that you've got to be careful in the sense that, well, sure, you don't want to destroy your future self, but the idea is that what will happen in the future is dependent on your actions today. And why is it we are so willing to believe in a movie that certain small actions have led to these great big changes while in our daily lives, we don't think our small actions can have huge consequences in the future. You're listening to a media savvy astronomer, folks. Uh, this, he knows what he's talking about. Wow, that's pretty powerful. I don't know if I can ask you these silly questions after that. Oh no, I'm no, chugging along. Like I said, I got this from a meme on the internet, but, <laughs> but it was one of those things that you know, every once in a while, one of these memes is like, "Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not a bad question to ask." 
All right. If someone were to ask Varjan, do you believe in aliens? Your answer is? Oh, it's always yes. Absolutely. Um, again, but it's, it's this distinction between um, statistically should there, you know, there, we know there's life on earth and every time we've observed anything, you know, any physical phenomena in the universe, whether it's trees, fish, stars, volcanoes, whatever, if there's, never have we ever seen just one of never do we sit there and say wow there's this is the only one of this kind of thing that i've ever witnessed the universe just physics chemistry biology all of that keeps repeating itself constantly so for us to be the only case where life originated on a planet just seems that is just a you know that would be the most interesting ever thing ever where we are the only time statistically that all of physics chemistry biology came together and provided you know intelligent life and that was it there's no other case of that so i think there's in that way absolutely they're aliens whether they have traveled in flying saucers and landed in some poor farmer's backyard and did something horrible to their cow that i find much more skeptical i'm much more skeptical in particular because um it used to be Again, we always got blurry photos of everything, but uh, the interesting thing to me was um, those photos didn't become better as we got better and better phones and, and so on. <laughs> it's like, why isn't hmm. that? So when we have these, you know, massive explosion of um, uh, recording media, but we're not getting any more of these detections. And in particular, if you go back to the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there is somebody makes the argument, hey, you know, we've never photographed an airplane while it's crashing, but we know airplanes crash. Hmm. But here's the thing. We're at a level now where we've literally photographed airplanes crashing. So, <laughs> those incredibly rare events, we now have enough people with their phones and other recording devices that we're recording incredibly rare incidents very rare i mean how often do you hear about an actual airplane crashing almost never mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but when it happens not over all the time but very often and this this isn't even now over it was a little bit over 20 years ago uh, your uh, listeners might remember the airplane called the concord it was a supersonic aircraft built in combination between the british and the french and it only crashed once which unfortunately was enough to because it was never a financially viable model for them for a whole host of reasons but it only crashed once uh there's no there's video of it crashing then this is like 2000 i don't know one two or so there you know still pictures of it while it was crashing enough for them to have figured out why it crashed hmm. so for over 20 years now we've had enough people with digital cameras or you know other photographic methods and so on so where are where are, where are these evidences of these aliens <laughs> visiting us and again it's an exciting thing. I would love, you know, for that to be, you know, to have happened or to be happening as, you know, as evidence that life exists elsewhere. It's certainly also a scary thing. There's no reason you know, to believe that uh, we, whatever aliens visit us would necessarily be benevolent. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I'm, I absolutely believe there are aliens out there. I hope that we find some evidence of them in some fashion while I, while I'm still alive. But I, I do realize that that may be just, you know, you know, pie in the sky. <laughs> uh, recent science fiction movie that had you excited. Recent science fiction movie that had me excited. Hmm. 
the, the problem is that so when I was a kid, there was like one science fiction movie that would come out a year, maybe two. Uh, nowadays, it's like almost everything. You know, most of the Marvel movies are effectively That's science true. fiction movies, <laughs> um, and so um, it's been. Uh, did you ever see uh, Ad Astra? I, I did not see Ad Astra, partly because uh, some friends of mine sort of were like, eh, "They're lukewarm yeah. on it." Um, uh, how about Moon? Did you ever see Moon? Oh no, I I wanted to see that one. This the problem is that you know my uh, my movie schedule, uh, recent movie schedule is that you know when you have a kid, you tend to watch <laughs> a younger yeah. kid tends yeah. <laughs> tends to be uh, uh, much more the kid oriented and the kid friendly mm-hmm. movies, and even going out to watch a movie becomes a much more larger production with babysitters and so on. Yeah. Um, what I will say though, in terms of recently, the thing I mean, I have to say the again in this realm, which Star Wars generally is considered science fiction, although it's primarily science fantasy, but still what I will say is um, the TV shows have gotten me a lot more excited. I've been very excited uh, on the sort of a more science fantasy side by the Mandalorian. I thought they did an incredible job with that show. Uh, I was really looking forward to watching that. Uh, And then separately, in terms of a slightly much harder science fiction, I will say, if you've not been watching The Expanse, I I, I haven't, they've they've come out, they're about to finish, and I don't know how they're going to finish, so it'll depend on that. But still, the rest of it has been an incredibly good science fiction series, much harder in its science than uh, most other, you know, science fantasy, more science fantasy oriented series. Uh, Speaking of The Mandalorian, I... uh... I think it was either this Christmas or last Christmas. I was at one of those big box electronic stores, Best Buy or something like that. And uh, I was looking for a game for my son. And I can't, I can't even remember why it came up. I think maybe over his receiver, he, he had a call saying, we're looking for a baby Yoda. And he went on like a 10 minute lecture about how that's an incorrect name. It's not actually a Yoda. And <laughs> yeah. I wish you had been there. You would have enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> no, it is. And, 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 and John Favreau, who's one of the creator of the show, uh, one of the creators of the show, but yeah, he's gone through and very much um, was always saying, don't call it baby Yoda, but everybody calls it baby Yoda. <laughs> yes. I know its name is Grogu, but still, everybody still calls it baby Yoda. <laughs> All right. Um, so, um, as a scientist, when you saw the speed and the effectiveness of the vaccines for coronavirus, you felt? Great satisfaction would be the word. And, and, and again, I'm not in the biological sciences, but what's, as just my personal experience, when I was an undergraduate, one of my friends was doing uh, a summer internship, uh, working on trying to get vaccines to go into cells, to, to, to transfer material into cells so that the cells themselves could be providing you immunity or other kinds of things. And it was just a disaster. It would not work. And I knew that they were working on this for literally decades. And so, uh, I had sort of vaguely heard that they had been marginally successful, but I, wasn't, I hadn't been following that closely. But once they came out with the mRNA vaccines, and the fact that they worked and they were able to create it on such a large scale so quickly, it was both shocking, but really satisfying, mostly not because, I, oh, you know, certainly yay science, but it's just like, this is the result. This is of hundreds, if not thousands of people working over decades to achieve this. And that's the part of science that most people don't see. We tend to go to, oh, to the Newton or the Einstein or the Hawking or the 
or even you know, the Watson and Crick who did, you know, the uh, structure of the gene or, um, or uh, Rosalind Franklin who did the x-rays of that. So we, we try and get these individuals who, again, whose contributions are incredible, but it really is on many levels a mass group human effort. It, it wasn't solely Americans. It wasn't solely Europeans. It's a, people have been working on this for a long time. So there was this great satisfaction because you, you rarely see that come to fruition on such a large scale. And I think with the, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, it's been a true, a truly amazing thing to see and to see science come in. And at a time when, you know, this was a critical time and it happened to be that all of that work paid off at this critical time. Whenever I'm teaching research methods, I always tell my students this saying, and I'm sure every professor all across the country uses this saying, that we are all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah. That no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you carry the field forward, where you started from was an incredible base of knowledge based upon the work of an endless number of thinkers who came before you. And, um, you know, speaking of that, speaking of uh, incredible work, and uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, as an astronomer, when you saw the James Webb telescope being launched and you saw the shield being unfurled, uh, tell us what was your reaction? Well, uh, as astronomers, you know, we've been waiting for this for a very long time. This project has been you know, tw over 20 years in the making. Um, so, but it's very hard for me to separate just the, the astronomer part of me is because I have very close friends of mine who are working on both the engineering side and building the telescope and, at, and to run the telescope and the various aspects of the running of the telescope. So to me, it was all this merged uh, feelings of I wanted it to succeed as an astronomer for the success of it and, of course, any kind of large-scale political thing, if a big mission doesn't work and then there's repercussions and so on. So, you want that all to come together and work for sure. But it was really overtaken by my concern for my friends who had spent so much of their careers working on getting this mission to work to space. And so, the fact that it launched and it launched well, it was, you know, just pure joy and satisfaction for my friends and, and, and joy for them. But then as each step happened and it worked and all of those very critical steps, which were very difficult to do. And that's one of the reasons why it was so expensive was that you can't go back and fix things with James Webb that you could like Hubble. I mean, it would really needed to work first time out of the gate perfectly. Uh, and this is the thing that most people don't understand in terms of any space mission. It's not just that it has to work out of the gate perfectly the first time, is that that's your prototype. It's not like you've built 20 of them and then you're launching the 20th one that has to work out of the gate for some purpose. This is the prototype. You can, there are things called engineering models, so you usually build essentially the equivalent of two of them. But really, every major space mission from the Mars rovers that you're seeing um, to James Webb, to Cassini mission to Saturn, those were flying prototypes. And if anybody that has built anything knows anything about prototypes, that's what you shake out, you know, all the things that you need to understand about it. Uh, and so, it's very difficult. And 
as difficult as it looks, it's even more difficult <laughs> for the people who are building it. So there was great joy with that, you know, all of that and great satisfaction and, and, and great comfort now that it's a sigh of relief of, oh, it all came together. Now you can just enjoy the uh, astronomy gains that come from it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, 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 of course, the astronomy. I mean, the, the astronomy that it promises, the reason why I think it, it, people pursued this is just the astronomy that, that will come out of James Webb is just staggeringly groundbreaking. It's just the sensitivity gains are just huge. So, and that's what astronomy uh, revolves around is, you know, what's your sensitivity? How much fainter can you go? How much more light can you gather? And when you gather more light, then you can spread it out into a spectrum, uh, like a rainbow. But, you know, that spectrum tells you the physical structures, what, what's the chemical structure of what's being, um, what you're looking at. So, all of this stuff is just incredibly exciting. But really, um, uh, in particular for the, my friends who are working on it, I was uh, very, very happy. All right. One last question. It's a three-parter. <laughs> um, most exciting scientific development you've seen in your lifetime? Mm-hmm. Most exciting scientific development you think we're right on the precipice of next decade, and then the thing you think most exciting that could happen in your in the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So uh, the most exciting in my lifetime. It's a little bit of a toss up because uh, one of the consequences from Einstein's theory of general relativity was this thing called gravitational waves. That is, if you if space time is a fabric, then you should be able to make waves in it, and it was predicted from very early on and. In the early 70s, they started trying to detect these and create, uh, and it's not detecting light in this. There's, uh, you can look up the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, but then in 2015, they detected gravitational waves. So, this was just over 100 years in the making, 30 years of working on the uh, these detectors to detect this minuscule changes in space-time um, coming through because they're waves coming through, which are generated by merging black holes. So, this is just incredibly exciting in that sense. So, I've been following that a lot. But then the real one, I think, but as a, as competing to that one, and I'm not trying to just be uh, equivocating here, but really, as that was incredibly exciting. But then detecting planets around other stars, exoplanets, has been the other absolutely you know, we've known there should have been planets around other stars. There's just no question about it. But until the mid-90s, really, we had no inkling of, no actual evidence of a planet orbiting a star like our sun or other other stars of different kinds. But, you know, from that point on, we have come to the point where we've discovered, you know, we're getting close to 5,000 planets around other stars that we've detected with various different techniques. Most of them called the transit technique where a planet passes in front of its star. So, the star is like dims by just a little bit. Um, but yeah, these are, that has just been just so exciting because it really has fundamentally opened up an entirely new uh, realm of science. And I think then that feeds into um, sort of the next 10-year mark. And I may may be optimistic in this, but I think over the next 10 years, particularly with James Webb, but also particularly with other instruments coming online, I think we might find an Earth analog around another star. Now, it doesn't have to be a star like our sun, but the idea of an Earth analog, I'm not saying it'll necessarily have, you know, we'll necessarily see, you know, have vegetation or something on it. But I think what we will say is that, look, it's a rocky planet the size of the Earth. 
it is at a distance from its star, whether that star is dimmer or brighter than our sun, but whatever that distance is, is it gets as much starlight <laughs> where it's orbiting as we get from our sun. So basically, the temperatures on that planet would be where the temperatures on Earth would be. Because, you know, it's around a dimmer star, but it's orbiting closer, or it's around a brighter star, and it's orbiting further out. But that, and then potentially, you know, maybe something about having an atmosphere, you know, and so on and so forth. But finding a true Earth analog, I think, would be one of the most exciting things. Now, we've, we've found near-Earth analogs two to three times the mass of the Earth, and sort of broadly speaking, you know, getting about the same light that Earth gets from our sun. But still, I think re-getting a true Earth analog would be, I think, one of the most exciting things in the next 10 years. Now, before uh, you have you you end your long, long life, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure they're going to dis discover some sort of uh, life enhancement tools that make <laughs> you live to be 200. So this is oh, way out in the yeah. in the distance here. But uh, before you leave this Earth, there's something that you you think could happen? You think could develop in science something really exciting? What would it be? I think. See, that's the one thing. Where I would switch away from, I can certainly make an answer for astronomy, but I don't think that will be the case. I, I really think what you just described is the most exciting thing, is that how do we deal with, uh, you know, death and disease and so on. And I think if you looked, if we look at just even, we were talking about the mRNA vaccines and so on, the works of so many people in that arena are changing the world. We've eliminated multiple diseases. Um, we, you know, are no longer afraid of some diseases, even, you know, cancer rates, although uh, the deaths from cancers, I, I believe the numbers have started turning around. So, these are all the kinds of things, again, that are works of many, many people. I think that's the biggest difference is that to not have that level of, you know, well, not just concern, but really fundamentally that, you know, we all hate to lose friends and families, certainly when we talk about before it was their time. But imagine if that time A were much longer, <laughs> so we have much longer time with our friends and family, and as well as we have a much healthier time with that friends and family. So, it's, I don't think it's worthwhile to live 200 years when 100 years of that you're bedridden. You know, yes, technically you're alive, but that's not really what necessarily I would consider you know, living what, but I think what I'm hoping for that within my lifetime, however long that is, hopefully it's a fair bit, and that's already been extended by all of the other medical things that have already gone on before. But I think that will be the truly fundamentally, because that will alter all of society. It can be exciting, it'll be exciting, it'll be scary, it'll be disruptive, it will be joyous, it will be all of those things. But I think that's, you know, the human aspect of um, science is that, you know, it's always. We, we always narrow down on one specific result, but really, I think, you know, science is a human endeavor and it is meant fundamentally to make, you know, our lives better in some fashion. I can't imagine it being better than not getting sick and not dying. You know, and, uh, and so, those are the kinds of things that I hope at least we get a good, you know, headway into while I, in my lifetime. All right, very quickly before you leave, I lied to you. I don't feel so bad about lying to you because you disparaged Doc Brown earlier. Oh, okay. um, so, I feel like we're kind of even at this point. Okay, okay, uh, sure. <laughs> I said that was your last question, but uh, here's your real last question. 
objectively speaking, as a matter of fact, as a matter of science, there is no wiggle room here. This is black and white. Yeah. Uh, the best Star Wars movie is and the worst Star Wars movie is. Go ahead. Oh, oh that's, that's easy. Best Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back. Absolutely no question about it. Worst Star Wars movie, oh, episode nine. Oh, that was terrible. I've only this seen is the most recent one? one? Yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. So well, that you, you one, heard it here, folks. You heard it here. Again, my, my own personal opinion, obviously, as a Star Wars fan, this is, yeah, but fundamentally, um, and again, I, I was not a hater of the newer ones. I liked episode seven, you know, Force Awakens and Last Jedi. I actually liked it more than other people, but uh, Rise of Skywalker was not one that I you know connected with. And it seemed like it tried to undo its previous two episodes and the mysteries that it had set up. I, I don't think it had respond answered very well. And the worst part of it to me was, you know, sorry, spoiler alert, but bringing back Emperor Palpatine undid the entire original, you know, episode four, five, six trilogy. I mean, it, it undoes the entire, that whole arc of Luke, you know, in his desperation being, you know, tortured by the emperor, you know, that interaction turns Darth Vader and brings about his, brings out his humanity to save his son and by killing the emperor. But then when you bring it back, it's like, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> it was, I can't believe they did that. I just can't believe they did that. And it was, a, you know, big, uh, I think, undermining of the much larger storyline they undermined their own storyline within the you know the last trilogy that they were doing. So yeah, it's e unfortunately it's easier to speak about you know things that didn't work versus things that did work. But I can certainly talk about you know how well I liked um, Empire Strikes Back and other you know and in varying degrees the other Star Wars movies have been you know floating around in terms of quality and enjoyment. But I will say yeah, it's um, those are sort of the best and the not so best. <laughs> Varjan Gorgian, a research astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and as we found out today, also a philosopher and professional movie critic. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you for having me. I always enjoy talking about uh, astronomy and movies, and this, this gives me the opportunity to do both. So, thanks so much. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again. Happy
happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.